Alex Sobel, co-founder of Millennium Alliance, back on the Millennium Live podcast series. My first interview of the year. Very excited for this. Amy Compton Phillips is with us. For those of you who don't know her or aren't too familiar with her, she actually was our keynote at the December Healthcare Providers Transformation Assembly down in Austin, which was a great event, partly because of the great start that we had from Amy. Just to give you some background on Amy before we start, Amy is an internationally respected physician, executive, innovator, and an author. In October of 2022, she became the president of Press Ganey, which I know most people on the planet are very familiar with, focusing on simplifying health and care. Until September of 2022, Amy was president of clinical care at Providence Health System based in Seattle, not Providence, Rhode Island, responsible for clinical operations and care, including improving health care, and value outcomes delivered by the 52 hospitals, over 1,000 clinicians, 120,000 caregivers of what amounted to a $25 billion health system. She was very instrumental in Providence's early adoption and scaling of technology, advancing what's known as the future of healthcare. And before joining Providence in 2015, Dr. Compton Phillips spent 22 years at Kaiser, moving from a frontline internist to ultimately serving as a chief quality officer. As you know, when I jump on on the, on the podcast, Part of what we're going to talk about with Amy is where she grew up. As she had referred to me uh, before, she's Midwestern raised, East Coast trained, and now I think practices out on the West Coast. So she's been all over the United States, done a lot of great things. During her time at Providence, which we're, we're going to touch upon as well, she had access and direct um, interaction with our first COVID patient here in the United States. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what she thinks about COVID in today's terms in January of 2023. But before that, let's start by welcoming Amy. Amy, we are so happy to have you. Thanks again for the reschedule. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. It is absolutely my pleasure to be here, Alex. And so thank you for all the kind words introducing me. Oh, of course. Of course. So Amy, as I understand, you grew up in Missouri. From looking at your bio and understanding the work that you've done, you've led a, a very purposeful, fulfilling life, it seems. I can imagine you probably wake up every day, not just in the role that you're in now, but in the roles that you've done previously and the work that you've done, feeling like that the work that you've done has meant something. So I'm curious how that started, You know, whether you came from a family of physicians or if when you were growing up in Missouri, was it more so you know, you wanted to do something purposeful, but you weren't sure exactly what it was. If you could talk a little bit about your upbringing, what your family life was like, maybe what your parents did, and then I guess we can we can take it from there if that's okay. Yeah, sure. My family is from Missouri. I grew up outside of St. Louis. My parents were both the first ones in their family who'd gone to college. No medical people in my background. Um, my mom was a teacher. My dad was in business, actually ran a quarry that became a demolition landfill. So like completely, completely different industries. And I never wanted to do anything other than be a doctor. And when I was growing up, um, you know, it was, it was an era where people would say, oh, you mean a nurse, honey? And I'm like, no, I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> so true story. I, like I said, I had no role models and in Webster Groves, Missouri, not a whole lot of people were coming out planning on being doctors from my, from my public high school. And so I watched a lot of MASH and BJ Honeycutt from MASH went to Hopkins. And so I figured like, oh, it must be a good school. So I applied um, and ended up going to Hopkins and, you know, had head down, never was going to do anything else. Um, finished my course work in three and a half years so I could work for and get residency in Maryland and be able to, you know, pay my bills going through med school. 
So I went to Maryland med school, joined Kaiser Permanente right out of med school because I really liked the idea. I'm I'm one of those people that believe that healthcare should be a right and not a privilege. And Kaiser helped, um, you know, was was consistent with the way I think. And, you know, I knew how to type. <laughs> so I became the computer expert. Yeah. And um, you know, back in the in the early 90s, that's what it took to be the computer expert. You had to be able to enter information. And my first really big role there was uh, leading population health for the Mid-Atlantic region of Kaiser. And uh, that's how I started believing that data could actually transform care. And my career went on from there. Before, I guess, you went to Hopkins. Was there, as you were growing up within inside your inside like your family was education a big part like getting a good education and going to college was that a big part of your upbringing because Hopkins obviously is a fantastic school and when it comes to from what I know about Hopkins when it comes to the medical program it's it's top in the world considered so you had to have had good grades and been a good student and really applied yourself was there a pressure from your parents to be a good student or was it more instinctual that you knew that you had to to be the doctor and the healthcare professional that you wanted to be? You know, I wish I could tease out why, but like I said, from the time I was in kindergarten, I, that's the only thing I ever said I was going to do. So it was, it was very early on the one, and my parents just assumed like we all, I have one brother, one sister. So there was three of us and we all just knew we were going to college. Like there wasn't a choice. It was just what we did, but there was no overt pressure from my parents. It was just the expectation you know, the one factor that I can, you know, if I try to dissect out why, why, you know, healthcare, why the caring professions, why do I think it's critical? My brother was born deaf. He's older than me. And so from the time I was very small, you know, two, three, four, my parents worked with him to learn how to read and to learn how to speak. And so there was constantly learning going on in our household and just a focus on in order to do the right things, you help other people do the right things and you benefit from it while you're doing it right? That there's mutual upside to helping each other. And I think maybe that just got woven into my personality, that it is just how we go through life. That seems to make sense, that connection. And that was the beginning of what's been a been a really fruitful career for you. So you were, you were technically, I guess, a physician in the, I guess, I don't know if this is the right term, but like in the field, dealing with patients for a large majority of your career, I think roughly specifically about 16 or so years. Explain what that was like dealing with patients one-to-one, some of the experiences you think about that were valuable to what you're doing now and some stuff that you've taken from there that also lends to, you know, even the work that you've been doing since then. Yeah. I loved taking care of patients. And by the way, the, the benefit that you get, you know, when you help somebody, when they're thankful that you're there for them, it is such an immediate reward. (laughs) So, so there is real benefit and it is really hard you know, initially I thought it was hard because there wasn't much information available and you had to start over again with every patient, right? Because we didn't have electronic medical records and we had information we had to piece together. And what you had in your office and your chart was different than what your colleagues who were taking care of the same patient had in their chart. So there was information gaps. Then as time went on and we started to get electronic medical records, there was, we were drowning in information. We had too much information that we couldn't call out the important pieces and it was really easy to lose information. And so you ended up focusing on data instead of the human being in front of you. And so, so trying to consistently, like one of the themes of my career is like, how do I, how do I take what is great about healthcare, which is one human being helping another human being optimize their life and make it easy to do the right thing. 
and because it's it's not easy right now, it's hard to do the right thing, that we, we go into healthcare because we want to make lives better. And how do we optimize the odds of helping the patient and the clinician be partners in making that happen? So today in 2023, how would you describe the state of information flow? Someone comes in off the street into the emergency room, or someone doesn't have what I would call like a, a crazy emergency, but they need to get to a doctor within the next day or so. They walk into the physician's office, a professional doctor sees them. How would you say in terms of where we're at maybe as a scale of one to 10 in terms of immediate information flow and what doctors have access to and kind of how quickly they can develop a full picture of someone, where we're at now? And if we're not at a 10, which I doubt we are, what, what do we need to do to make sure that anyone who comes in off the street, a doctor can pretty much understand anything about them very quickly? Yeah, I would give us a five. And the reason I'd give us a five is because we do, there is information available. Accessing that information and accessing the synthesized information that puts that picture together holistically about a patient in a pithy form is really hard. Part of why that is, so just one, one little tidbit. Uh, back when I was at Providence, um, there was a stat. Providence is an epic shop. And so, you know, an EMR that really fundamentally was based on a billing infrastructure. So we code things in discrete fields. We put all the right information so you can get the appropriate code from, from um, whoever the payer is. And because you focus on that, you're not focusing on the clinical storyline, right? Yeah. And the narrative about the, about the patient. And it turns out, and these are rough numbers, if I'm off by 100, I apologize, but in the EU, the average epic note is about 1,400 words. In the US, the average epic note is about 4,500 words. And at Providence, our average epic note was 5,500 words. And so it turns out that every time the patient comes into the emergency room with, with something acute happening, and you have to rapidly figure out what's going on with them, you can't scroll through War and Peace to try to get to that story quickly, right? So, so having information, you know, having data is good, but distilling out that data so it becomes the relevant information to care for that patient in that point at that time with the gaps clearly highlighted would be way more helpful. So too much data, not enough information today. Well, for some of the sales guys from technology companies listening on this podcast, some of the healthcare chief revenue officers, that's that's something that's something definitely to think about is physicians deal with that, I'm sure, every minute of the day, which is obviously quite challenging. So I noticed you moved over at Kaiser. You took a big role as, as the chief quality officer in 2010, which I find it, it's an interesting year because that was the year where the Affordable Care Act, I believe it was 2010, became law. I think it was the latter part of 2010. When you were taking on that position, because it was a transition for you, but how much of what you were thinking about was related to adapting to the new law, excitement about the new law, fears about the new law? Because you you had you had stated something which I agree 100% that healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. And the Affordable Care Act got us way more toward that vision. You know, we, not everybody in America, as, as you know, is, is covered, but a lot more people are covered and a lot more people have preventive care and so on and so forth. I'm curious where your head was at taking on such a big position at that time and this what it was like in such a major healthcare system during a time of so much change, some of the biggest change ever in the industry. 
you know, really exciting, different than the excitement of uh, COVID. <laughs> so yeah. the excitement of COVID was, you know, oh my gosh, we have to deal with this huge threat. The excitement around the ACA is what a huge opportunity to actually impact the health of the population, right? The health of the people that we serve. If you look at Commonwealth Fund data, the population health in the U.S. is significantly worse than any any other rich industrialized nation, pretty much, right? So if you look at the population health measures, whether it's longevity, whether it's burden of disease, whether it's the numbers of bankruptcies, you know, the financial health of our people um, tends to score uh, quite low. And so I was thinking, oh, wow, the ACA is going to help us fix this. It's actually going to do things like cover and incent preventive care. It's going to make sure we don't have people who are falling through the cracks. It's going to make sure that we have capacity for people that are otherwise underserved between the Medicaid, the gap between Medicaid and the people who have insurance through an employer. You know, wow, we finally get to serve that segment of the community. So that was really helpful and hopeful. And then of course the proof is always in the pudding and politics got in the way. And, and so we're, we're, we aren't Nirvana yet, but it was an exciting place to be, to be able to compete, to attract and retain patients that now for the first time had the opportunity to interact with the healthcare system. I mean, we do so many events in healthcare, so I pay attention to the industry fairly well. Would you say 10 years later, 10, 11, oh no, 12, 13 years later, excuse me, that the ACA has been more of a net positive on the industry? Or what are your overall thoughts in terms of the law a decade later? I, I absolutely think it's a net positive. You know, and again, you can double check my numbers here, but I believe when the ACA came into being, there was, for some reason, the number 17 million is in my mind of people who were uninsured in the US. Um, and I believe we're down to about 8 million, right? So so there is like a huge chunk of people. That's a lot of people, right? If oh, yeah. 10 million plus people got insurance coverage through the ACA, which is better to have insurance than not have insurance, right? So it, I, I just because the lack of insurance or the presence of inadequate insurance keeps people from doing the things they need to do to stay healthy. And they wait till catastrophe strikes and then go to the EDs that people have to be taken care of, right? So that's not a great way to actually improve the health of the nation. So the fact that we have significantly more people today that are covered is much better than having all these people uncovered. That said, because of the environment that we're in and the dissension and dissatisfaction, the way the ACA is structured, we could really end up with a healthcare system kind of like the Netherlands that has a very similar market-driven, you know, you have a guaranteed benefit level that is like some essential, and then you have people compete, you have organizations compete on um, taking care of patients for that benefit level. It works really well in the Netherlands. It's not quite there yet in the U.S. And so we still need to keep tweaking and experimenting and figuring out ways to continue the transformation of the healthcare system. Would that require us in the United States to have a public option, to have a similar system to the Netherlands? I think that it would require us thinking through what are the options and whether that is opening up Medicare to all comers you know, as an option, not as a requirement, but as an option, it could be that. It could be trying to, you know, on a state by state basis, saying if you had to cover all of the people in your state, what would you do? And allowing some innovative models. So mm -hmm. I, I think that there's capacity to try different things. And I don't know whether or not it's requiring everybody to go to a public option first. Personally, I think we need to experiment and we need to measure what works and do more of what works. So Deciding on big problems, I mean, big solutions across the country without trying and testing them somewhere first, 
feels like a great way to fail to me. It's interesting because, you know, I used to hear statistics about how much of the healthcare industry takes up our total GDP and the fact that the reason why people get so sick is because by the time they get to the hospital, there were things they could have been doing ahead of time with regular doctor's visits if they had the proper coverage. And a lot gets talked about through our communities about, you know, will America ever be, I guess, a Medicare for all type of type of system. But it seems that if we if we were never get there, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But we could end up in a situation where at least pretty much everybody could have the right health care coverage and be protected. And we can be in a situation where we can get we can be healthier because of it. And that's why I like talking to people like you about because so much has changed in the last decade within healthcare. Now, it's exciting to see what can happen in the next 10 years as more people have coverage, more people have access to things. And as long as that keeps going up and we keep innovating, there's a lot of endless opportunities. Yeah. If I could just pile on, because it's not just coverage, it's also the type of coverage. And one thing I think is really important is switching from fee-for-service over to value-based care. And I think that's as important as having coverage. The reason being, if you look at all those other rich industrialized countries, um, there was a great story and graph out of health affairs done probably a decade ago now that showed that if you stack up the healthcare spend and the social care spend together, that we actually, in the U.S., we spend about the same on that combination as other rich industrialized nations, but other nations spend more on social care. So they ensure that, you know, that base of Maslow's hierarchy, that people have food and shelter, that they have the immunizations and places to go if they're lonely, right? It's the care infrastructure that helps us need less acute care beds. And for the same spend between those two buckets, you generate better health outcomes with the version where you actually are focusing on making sure people are housed and fed and not only, you know, they're they're homeless and end up with ulcers and and exposure injuries in the ED because because some basic needs weren't met. And you mentioned the word immunizations. It's a good transition to COVID. You have a very interested COVID story. As I said, uh, when I was introducing you, when you were the president of Clinical Ops of Providence, Health System of Seattle, just so everybody knows, you guys took in the first COVID patient. So that is extremely interesting because this was, I believe, January of 2020. I guess for for me and for our listeners, what was that like from the time the person got in? How did you know it was COVID or what made you, did you, how were you able to confirm it was COVID, et cetera, et cetera? Could you walk us through that story? That seems like pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, um, probably like everybody in early January 2020, if you can remember back into the dark ages, you know, we'd been through Ebola. We had systems in place. We were watching the fact that there was this novel virus circulating in Wuhan, China. We had our infectious disease specialists coming together and saying, what if, when, you know, what what will we do? And in fact, a couple of our hospitals had even practiced, if you got a patient, how do we, how do, we do the biohazard containment, et cetera, right? So we were kind of like, we were prepared. Um, And we had a really smart, clever nurse practitioner working in an urgent care on a Sunday, on a Saturday, sorry, on a Saturday. And a patient came in and said, hey, I have a fever and I was just visiting my family in Wuhan, China. What do you think I should do? And she said, well, let's let's call the CDC because I'm not sure. You know, this was back before anybody had ever heard of, of, we knew it was a coronavirus, but that was circulating, but we didn't know anything more than that. And so the CDC helped us identify that as as 
the novel coronavirus infection um, the next day. And we were able to put all of our plans into place literally on a Sunday night um, in 2020, January 20th, 2020, and be able to do everything from talk to our supply chain people and say, hey, we're going to need more masks because we've got sure. this containment thing to our electronic medical records saying, hey, it's here in the States. We better better activate our, our screening protocols that we're going to put, you know, flip a switch and get it live in a thousand medical offices and 52 hospitals the next morning. So it was pretty interesting. And then, you know, of course it expanded from there. That patient came in on that Saturday or Sunday to the hospital? They, uh, they got seen on Saturday, got diagnosed. We got the test back on Sunday. So. Okay. And, and so then we called them and said, Hey, you've got the germ. Um, let's get you into the hospital. And so we actually brought them in, you know, now in retrospect, it's like overkill, but we didn't know at the time. So they came in in one of those biocontainment pods. So we're met in the parking lot with this biocontainment pod and had them crawl in. And so you're wheeling them through the hospital like you would with this super high level Ebola level containment system into the negative pressure room where they were watched and, and treated over the next 10 days to be able to, to actually figure out what to do with them. So I remember, I don't know if it was the end of February, early March, there was some back and forth from the, from, I guess the federal government, like, should patients wear masks, should they not? It wasn't a conclusive thing, what it was kind of right immediately after. Did that person, the first person come in, did you, were they masked? Because I know it wasn't certain on, on what to do with masks that early. They were, like I said, we treated them like they had Ebola. So they weren't oh, just, God. they were in a negative pressure room that was considered the, you know, the hot room that we had a cold room in between. And so they were, they were very high level contained, but that's different than the public wearing masks, right? Like, so, yeah. so. That individual that we knew had this novel germ that we had no idea what it did was was completely isolated from everybody. So, you know, the nurses going into their room and the doctors going into their room had like full on Tyvek hazmat suits. 2021, 21, 22. We're over, obviously, a few years into COVID. And in many respects, it feels like, what is COVID anymore? People don't really pay much attention to it. I'm curious. I, I was of the school of thought that this is new. and People in the medical world, very smart people, are trying to figure this out as we go. So, because I, you know, I remember everything's political now, right? So, I remember people would be like, "Well, you know, remember when they said you didn't need masks, and now you need masks? So, how do you know?" And I, I always just was from the school of thought that, well, it's it's new. People are just things are going to change. I always trusted that the people inside the CDC and people like yourself and these are the people that, out of anybody, would know the best. It doesn't mean they're not going to change. They're not going to change course. I'm curious. Years into this. If you felt that looking back, if there was anything we did too much of, was there too much in, in regards to safety and lockdowns and things like that? Because I'm always better be safe than sorry type. So I'm thankful that so many people, the intention was to keep people safe from your perspective as a past physician, C-level executive in the industry, now working on the other side. If you were to go back in time if, as a country, we could have done things a little bit differently and not been so, so overly anxious about it. So I'd say over a million people died of this novel germ. So it was and is a real threat to human life, particularly at a time prior to having vaccines, right? When we had no vaccines and when we had no knowledge, by the way, thank you for understanding the fact that we had to learn our way into this. We, we didn't know. And so you're, you're making your best educated guess, but- sure. 
actually you start with best educated guests. And so that nuance is really critical. So it is a serious term. And over-indexing on keeping everybody in the country safe did things like I really worry now about the generation of school children that missed, you know, definitely a full year. And some kids missed two years of school mm. because not knowing when to reopen schools was a real challenge for a lot of you know, teachers who were worried about being exposed to children and then children, parents who were worried about their children bringing it home to people in the family. So, you know, there's downsides of over-indexing on protecting everybody in the country. So what I hope out of this, in the same way that I think we need to learn our way into what works in the U.S., for to actually ensure coverage and lower cost and improve health, right? Like let's let's learn through the natural experiments that are happening. We have natural experiments around the globe. Um, we had countries like uh, South Korea that had less lockdowns, but had much lower death rates because they focused on a more tailored version of who do you isolate? When do you isolate them? How do you protect the most vulnerable in society, which means the seniors and like such really focus on the risk mitigation processes to keep COVID from spreading to seniors. So I think what we need to do in the U.S. is study what worked during this pandemic so that the next pandemic will be ready. Were you surprised about the pushback to the vaccine in regards to not just that what I would call nonsensible stuff to the vaccine? I mean, I, I'm vaxxed. I just got my booster, my second booster a few weeks ago. When the vaccine came out in December, I think it was of 2020, even now, up until this time period, were you taken back at all by how much resistance and I guess conspiracy stuff and fear mongering there was on the vaccine? Was that surprising to you? It was, you know, it, although, you know, on the West coast, we've had pockets of vaccine resistance for a while that vaccines have been so effective that people forget how bad the diseases are. Sure. You see a child with polio or a child with um, uh, measles encephalitis, you know, brain inflammation from measles, you get your kids vaccinated because 100%. you know what these diseases are. But the the very small risk of any complication with infections has overweighed in people's minds for a while because the risk from the infection was so low. So this kind of like anti-vaccine rhetoric has taken hold. Um, and that rhetoric in the age of social media and uh, less than less than helpful rhetoric from some in power has sure. amplified that anti-vaccine numbers. And it's really unfortunate because again, like look at the data in the states that are less vaccinated, death rates are higher. Sure. It's not conspiracy. It is the germ taking hold. By the same token, I also think one of the key things early on, every viral infection does, if, if you get the virus, you have some degree of immunity afterwards, right? Is that permanent or is that just for a certain yeah, period of time? It depends on the virus and, and immunity can wane over time. And it, like in cold viruses, rhinoviruses, and in the COVID virus itself, immunity wanes over time, but it does confer immunity initially. And so by the same token, we also needed to say everybody needs to get vaccinated. And if you've had COVID, it's equivalent to one vaccine, right? But roughly sure. um, that that you still need your boosters and you need, you know, you need a third booster when you come out with, a, with the uh, bivalent vaccine in the fall. So I, I think both sides of the conversation 
pretending like natural immunity did not exist was not helpful and pretending like the vaccines or coming in with conspiracy theories about how the vaccines are harmful was not helpful. Yeah, I just got my second booster a few weeks ago and I was a little bit nervous because I know a lot of people who got the first two doses, a little bit less people that got the first booster and like very few people getting this booster. And I'm talking about non-conspiracy type people that are knocking this booster and you know, I was like a little bit like getting thrown off a little bit, but then obviously I got my head together and realized it was probably better for me to get the booster than to not. What I get worried about with this stuff is, is that since the COVID has hit and all of these crazy theories, in my opinion, crazy in regards to the vaccine, it's now seeping into what I'm a young parent and what other parents are doing in regards to the other vaccines, right? And I'm hearing stories of young kids not being vaccinated with anything. And I find that from what I know about vaccines to be the most frightening. Interesting story is my older son was born premature. He was born at 31 weeks. Totally fine. He was just very small and he's four and a half now and you would never have known he was premature. We were very fortunate, but he was in the NICU for four and a half weeks. I developed a huge respect for nurses and for doctors. We were in Jersey. So this was at Barnabas in Livingston, New Jersey, and they were unbelievable. You know, I didn't know anything about not getting kids vaccinated. So I went out to dinner with a couple before my son was six months old. So he just had a six month shot. He was about to about to have his six month shots. And they were telling me about this book to read. This is before COVID and vaccines are dangerous and all this type of stuff. In Hoboken, New Jersey, I went to the doctor and I had a bunch of questions for her, right? I had known, knew nothing but just to get your kids vaccinated. And I remember after 20 minutes of asking her questions, she looked at me and she said, listen, Alex, I just had a kid whose parents didn't want to give him the meningitis vaccine. And he got meningitis and he's paralyzed from the waist down. So I know there's a lot of information out there. You know, ever since that moment, I was like, oh, okay, I'm good, you know. But I remember that wasn't so mainstream. And I'm just worried, just as a personal note, that now with the theories and some of the stuff that's picking up in some of these computers with the COVID vaccine, it's seeping into some of the more traditional vaccines that people have been having um, for 50 years. So it's a little bit frightening. Just a more of kind of a neurotic parent question for you. If hypothetically, my kids are vaccinated with all the appropriate vaccines on the right schedule. And they then are exposed to someone who didn't get vaccinated with, let's say, you know, the MMR vaccine or polio or whatever. And they, does being around someone that's not vaccinated with those things make them more susceptible to them? Or is their protection as strong as it, as it's supposed to be? For the most part, their protection should be strong. Okay. There are individuals with certain types of immune deficiency that the, that the vaccine might not protect them completely, for example. But for the most part, most children should be protected if they are around unvaccinated kids who get the germ. But but the what you're saying it is frightening. Misinformation is so easy to circulate with the the information channels of today through social media in particular is really scary. And it's why there's things like measles outbreaks in New York City, because it can take hold in certain populations where, where you know, you get this amplification effect because my friends are doing it. So I'm going to do it too. Mm-hmm. I'm take vaccines. And it could end up leading to, you know, more kids paralyzed from getting meningitis. Sure. That shouldn't happen ever. I know young parents, young kids, I don't know a lot of them where their kids don't have any vaccines in them. And, you know, I always said now that the anti-vax movement has got some steam, some momentum. It's like, you got to pick a side. And I pick the side of what seems to be scientific consensus and making decisions for your children. You got to 
I got to be able to sleep at night that I'm going with the side that I think is out for my best interest and my kids' best interest. So I, I got full exposure to the when when my son was in the NICU, it, how important, especially nurses, you know, nurses and teachers, some of the two most underappreciated professions um, in the country. I wanted to ask you because you you had been on the clinical side for so long and recently jumped over to Press Ganey, which is obviously a very prominent organization. We get recommendations for them all the time. W- was it more that you wanted to go on the other side of the industry, I guess, on the innovation side? Not that hospitals aren't innovative, but on the more the technology side, was it something that Press Ganey was doing? How, how did that come about? I, 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 you seem like someone who's very deliberate in what you do and very purpose-driven, as I mentioned. How did that come about? Was it the company? Was it what they were doing? I'm curious about that story. It was the opportunity. The fact that Preschini is really focused on reducing suffering, focused on saying, how do we humanize healthcare? Because it is the ultimate service industry. We should be thinking about how to optimize the human experience of care. And believe me, I have nothing but respect for hospitals and hospital systems. Well, hospitals intrinsically have to have full beds to pay their bills, right? As I look forward into the future of healthcare, um, I don't necessarily want to be filling hospital beds. I want to do everything we can to keep people out of hospital beds because they're staying healthy and at home. And so as we think about what the future of healthcare holds, this human-centered um, focus on keeping people healthy and well, reducing the suffering and the burden of disease, producing minimally disruptive care through simplified systems is really where I want to spend the rest of my career. So it's an, it's an opportunity for me to actually help make a difference in what the future of care holds. Well, that's a good reason. That's a very good reason. And obviously, Press Caney is a fantastic company. I know you have a lot going on, and I appreciate you giving me this time. Loved our conversation so far and everything that you are doing. And I don't know if people in your world feel a sense of appreciation, but there are, I'm sure, plenty of people in this country, maybe not the loudest people, that very much appreciate that there are people like you doing what you're doing because it's difficult and it sometimes gets very much misinformed on purpose and the country would have been in a lot worse spot during COVID without so many people in your profession getting their hands dirty and doing the really tough work. So for me, I'm beyond thankful for people like you. And I know there's, there are a lot of other people that get it. And I'm, I can imagine, and I mentioned teachers before, but I don't get from a personal venting a little bit here, how we got to a place in the country where there's enough momentum of being tough on healthcare professionals and being unnecessarily disrespectful to people like teachers, the, the, the people that really just, for the most part, or do the job that they feel they need to do because they want to they help people. So I wanted to say thank you for that. And um, I know you're in Seattle now, which I mentioned to you when we were offline, is my favorite city in the country. How long have you been in Seattle? Seven years. So you've been I'm, in seven years. I'm not planning on moving away anytime soon. <laughs> like, I love I it. Yeah. I want to wrap up just because you've lived, I don't know if you've lived anywhere in between, but I know you grew up in Missouri, college in Maryland, master college, Johns Hopkins, master's at Maryland. And when you were at Kaiser, when you started at Kaiser, where were you? I stayed in the D.C. metro area. So for uh, we were there for 28 years and oh, then wow. moved out to the Bay Area. And Kaiser's national headquarters is in sure. Oakland. So moved out to the East Bay back in 2010. Out of everywhere you lived, your favorite place would be? You know, I have to say I'm pretty happy in Seattle and I'm not planning on going anywhere else, like I mentioned. 
Yeah, I love it. Do, do you stay there a lot during the winter? Because I know it's tough in the winter there. It's a little gray. So last year during COVID and, and you know, working 100 hour weeks for a couple years in a row, we ended up having to go south for a month <laughs> and yeah. worked from Palm Desert, which was kind of nice because I needed sunshine. But now in my job, I have the opportunity to be all over the country working with health systems and trying to humanize healthcare. On occasion, if I if I go somewhere where the sun shines a little bit more, that helps get my vitamin D in. People say from Seattle that kind of what they what people told me from Chicago, you, you stick out the winters because the summers are what make what make it worth it. Exactly. Thank you so much. I appreciate you giving me almost an hour. Amy Compton Phillips, unbelievable background, doing such great work. You can follow her um, online at Press Ganey and all the good work that they're doing. Amy, thank you for being here. I hope you're not a stranger. Hopefully, we see you in an event as we keep building back momentum for our in-person events. Thank you for all that you do. Thanks for going on the podcast. And yeah, I'm looking forward to doing a part two to this one day. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate the time and the conversation.